There has never been a more important time to talk about public health careers, especially with the current coronavirus pandemic. It's a career field many truly don't understand, hence they don't consider it, which is why we are so fortunate to have our next guest, Patricia Blevins. Patricia has over 17 years of experience in public health with concentration in laboratory services, biosafety and biosecurity, training and global health. Tricia currently serves as the laboratory coordinator for the City of San Antonio Metropolitan Health District. In this role, Tricia oversees a laboratory response network program, influenza surveillance, as well as the select agent program, which she serves as the responsible official. Prior to joining San Antonio Metro Health District, Tricia served as the Emerging Infectious Disease Program Manager for the Association of Public Health Laboratories, where she continues to serve on national public health laboratory committees. As an international technical consultant with the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's Global Influenza Surveillance Program, Tricia has had the opportunity to travel all over the world, conducting training workshops and performing laboratory assessments. Trisha began her public health career as an APHL, CDC Emerging Infectious Disease Fellow at the New York State Department of Health Wayward Center. Trisha received an MPH from the University of North Texas Health Science Center and a BS in Microbiology from Texas A&M University in College Station. We are so thrilled to have Trish. Well, Trisha, I am so honored that you said yes. Obviously, this is a crazy busy time for anyone in public health. And I just felt like having this conversation and and educating the public in general about what public health is and what kind of career fields exist, there's never been a more ideal time. So thank you for, we were actually scheduled her for last month and um, obviously, <laughs> this was not a priority within our work schedule, and um, I just appreciate you being available. I have known Trish for a few years. We met through a mutual friend, and what's been really interesting is, as you all know, I, I love understanding what people do. Obviously, I wouldn't do that as a career if I didn't, and Trisha has always pushed me to make sure when I am speaking at schools or working with clients that public health is a part of the conversation because so few people really understand it. And so as a result, and I was thinking about who do I want to have come in and talk, she was high on my list. So thank you very much for, for agreeing to participate. Of course. So tell, I always want everyone to kind of start and talk about their career progression, how they get there, why they got there, and a little bit about your background. So I'll turn it over to you to, to share a little bit. Sure. So I, I do appreciate that when you go out, you mention public health, because I think it's gotten better that people know a little bit more about the field. But definitely, when I was going through high school, there, um, I it was either declared by my family or somewhere along the lines that I was going to be a doctor. And so I bought into that too. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm good. You know, I understand the science thing. Math works for me. I I can handle this. Yeah, that sounds like a great progression. So going into college, that was what I thought I wanted to do. But Mm -hmm. um, as I went along, it really 
wasn't what I wanted to do. And, uh, but I didn't know what, if, if not that, then what. I started going, when I first went to um, Texas A&M University as an undergraduate, I thought biochemistry was the way I was supposed to get there to help me, you know, get in that science field and become a doctor. Because I thought, well, if this doctor thing doesn't work out, I have a degree in, in biochemistry. But mm-hmm. I, I soon realized it was too basic research. I, I actually got a Howard Hughes um, research um, fellowship while I was at A&M, and I was offered the opportunity to work in uh, a laboratory. They paid for me to work just a few hours in a lab, and so I did, and though I did like the environment, this was too basic research for me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We were studying, you know, it's, it's the protein that binds with this protein that later on, later on, later on, later on could help develop a cancer you know, a drug mm-hmm. or something like that. It was too far away from, I, I kind of needed a more immediate <laughs> response to the actions I was doing. So mm-hmm. I wanted something that was more applied, um, but still didn't know what that was. Um, so I switched majors and I went to microbiology because I, I, I did like, you know, to understand about bacteria and viruses and especially how they, um, affect us and, and the diseases they cause and how we treat them. So I was interested in that. And uh, one of my favorite courses at um, A&M in that program was diagnostic bacteriology. And basically you had unknown bacteria that you would get at the beginning of the week and you had to idea or try to figure out what they were by the end of the week. That was the class and I loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, afterwards, I, I didn't know what to do with this because it was all mm-hmm. either you go to med school or you you go into academia and I didn't mm-hmm. want to do that I didn't want to run a lab like that um so I did hear about decided not to get to med school but heard about um getting like a master's in public health this um and a lot of universities in the area were just starting to bring on these masters of public health programs um, some weren't accredited yet more so I was looking around to try to find okay well maybe this is the way I should go you know to find something in this public health um so I did and I got a master's in public health and it was in epidemiology which is the study mm-hmm. of kind of like tracking down diseases and a good example right now um but they talk about these contact tracers or contact tracing and following, you know, who's been infected with what's mm-hmm. going on now. So epidemiologists really look at that. They're finding out, they're doing statistics, they're, they're the ones that are tracking down this. I, I did like that. I was great at statistics, but I missed the lab part. Mm-hmm. And then I, I had a great at that um, university. We had like an, an education um kind of like the department head that would put out information about upcoming internships or just opportunities out there almost kind of like a career counselor for the university and he posted about the centers for disease control and the association of public health laboratories had this emerging infectious diseases fellowship program 
And I was like, well, you know, it's bringing this public health and lab together. And it introduced me to this public health laboratory, which is different from working in a hospital laboratory where you're getting samples every day from the patients that are in the hospital. This is more dealing with community and outbreaks mm. and things that are happening out in your community. So I was like, I think this is a good marriage <laughs> of my mm -hmm. public health my new, this new master's of public health that I just got and my lab experience. So I applied, I got it. I spent um, what turned out to be over about two years at New York State Department of Health in Albany. And I thought I was going to go in there and because they ask you what you're interested in, what would you like to know? And actually, I chose New York State because they offered to let me do rotations because I, I really didn't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they were willing. Um, I could have gone to the CDC right away. They had places, and it was really tempting because, of course, you know, people want to go work at, at CDC. But I was concerned that I was going to go into one laboratory and I was going to be stuck there. And what if I didn't like it? Right, and right. New York offered me the opportunity to explore and to make mm -hmm. that fellowship whatever I wanted. So, you know, I could enhance certain skills that I didn't think um, were as strong as they needed to be. Then I could go into something completely different and spend a couple of months with these people just to learn, just to learn more. Um, mm -hmm. While I was there, it was, um, I actually started at that laboratory September 13th, 2001. So obviously a lot of things had just happened at 9-11. And then a month later, we had um, the issue of the anthrax letters being released into the postal system. Mm -hmm. um, New York had a huge response in that, as in a lot of letters were sent to um, News uh, agencies there in New York City, you know, New York City was just trying, I mean, was just dealing, still dealing with the after effects of 9-11. And so the New York State Lab was helping with testing. And I had always been interested in, you know, working in a biosafety level three lab, because that's which, where you work when you're dealing with these agents, um, and mentioned it when I got into my fellowship and there and they said, you know, it's great. We'd love to show it to you, but you know, at the time we really don't get a lot of things. And of course, you know, here comes 9-11 and then the release mm -hmm. of the anthrax letters and it, it, it opened up for me. And mm -hmm. I went and I asked someone like I would be very interested in helping out and doing and, and helping in this response. And they said, sure. So I got trained, um, and that was my first. That steered me toward studying um, and working with bioterrorism agents and definitely working in a biosafety level three laboratory. Um, right. Stayed there for a while, and it's just, it's interesting how connections you make along the way help you kind of guide where you're going. The Association of Public Health Laboratories, that was a co-sponsor of my fellowship, 
I ended up working for them in Washington, D.C., which was interesting to work on a national level. And it was a nonprofit association kind of helping out um, public health laboratories and being their advocate. And it was a, it was a great learning opportunity to, to learn how to, you know, educate um, Capitol Hill for funding opportunities. It was under, it was educational and just learning how different all public health laboratories were across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, it really gave me a lot of experience in that, but it also gave me some experience in global health, and I was able to help with global training opportunities, um, which really piqued my interest. And Mm -hmm. when I left there and I came to the city of San Antonio, I had already made connections through that, um, the programs that I I was managing at APHL, that I was doing a lot of uh, consulting work with CDC, and they asked me if I could still help. So here I was in this local environment, being able to manage this laboratory, but also help on a global level, which I never thought I would do. Right. Uh, right. Or knew that that was going to happen when I signed up for that fellowship a long time ago. But it kind of just, it's like bumper cars. You get bumped into (laughs) different opportunities. And I think the, the big thing is to say yes, or at least try it out. Yeah. And, and and not be scared about it because you you'll be so surprised where it leads you, and right. you know here I am dealing with again another outbreak mm-hmm. <laughs> in my right. short tenure tenure here. So um, yeah, it's always changing. I would never, I never thought that I would be in this position way back then because I didn't know this even existed. And right. I'm so glad I found it. And I'm so glad more people, I think it's gotten a little better because you see more um, kind of public health programs and, you know, it's, it's more talked about in the news. And so it's gotten better, but still it's not at the level where people just think, oh, I have to either become a doctor or mm-hmm. basic research in a laboratory. Well, and I will tell you, I have so many young adults that I work with who very much like you come to me. And I even some of my podcast guests have said, um, you know, my architect um, a few episodes back said, you know, I thought I was going to be a doctor. And then I got there and thought, oh, this this doesn't work. This isn't feeling right. I don't know that this makes sense for me. And I do think doctor is one of those doctors lawyers we we grab onto that because it's easy it's we can digest it we can articulate it and so that's why i think career exploration is so critical because when you only hold on to things that you know about it eliminates all these incredibly wonderful things that exist and i will tell you that um just from a personal standpoint trish was having a conversation with my junior in high school who is a science person she's a stem girl and her language and Trisha's language back and forth to one another was, it was just so, so enriching. She, my daughter was asking great questions. You know, you look for that curiosity. And if you don't come in contact with someone, you don't get to learn from that. And I think another thing that you mentioned that's really critical is it's actually a personality trait where you need to see immediate reaction. 
you have to see the fruits of your labor. Um, some people can work for long periods of time and it doesn't matter if they ever accomplish something. It's, you know, they like the process, but for some people who don't realize, oh my gosh, I have to see a beginning and an end that's important for my psyche. They don't know how to translate that ultimately into careers. Um, right. So, and that happens, you know, as you go through your life and you're able to articulate it. The other thing with um, many of the science careers, not always, but is that you have to have a high numeric reasoning and it's not necessarily math. Math is sometimes can go hand in hand with it, but it's seeing trends and numbers. And you talked about how you love the statistics class. And that's another way of articulating, okay, well, what careers really value the statistical aspect of it? And why is that? Because you're probably have, I haven't tested you, but you probably have a high level of that. Otherwise you wouldn't like it. So it's putting all these little pieces of the puzzle together and finding these careers that, you know, really you just explode and, and, thrive in, which is what has happened with you. Um, so I want you to tell everyone about the day in the life of what you do. And I know every day is different, but you probably have a little bit more continuity than some of my career fields. So tell me, tell me what your typical day looks like. Okay. So I, as you know, I manage and supervise a laboratory, um, I wear a lot of hats. So one thing and another um, idea to, for people to keep in mind is, you know, always the same, you know, you want to be a big fish in a small pond or a little fish mm -hmm. in a big pond. Mm -hmm. And I did the small fish in a big pond. I would call that when I was at New York State Department of Health because um, it was big and mm -hmm. <laughs> there was a lot of people and I was there at the Lazarus Center and learning a lot. But it was very specific. Like I was in one area once I got a position there. And unless you make um, your own changes and your own um, career track for yourself in there, you could get stuck. Mm. Um, you could learn just one thing and, and never move on. You have to take a little bit of initiative. Um, mm. Here being, quote unquote, a, a big fish in a small pond, it's a smaller laboratory, so I have to cover and I'm responsible for several things. We're in a larger laboratory. There are several individuals that are in charge of that. So not only am I in charge of the testing and the testing results that come out of our laboratory, um, I'm in charge of safety. Um, in some places, there is a separate safety officer, a biosafety officer. Um, mm -hmm. I'm also in charge of um, our lab space, like the logistics of the lab space and making sure the maintenance stays up. So I'm not actually doing the maintenance, but I have to make sure everything is running in the laboratory. Mm -hmm. um, whereas you work in a bigger um, laboratory, there is a whole maintenance department and you're kind of not linked in as much. So I do like the idea that there's a lot of hats I have to wear. Um, some days I don't like certain hats <laughs> that I have mm -hmm. to wear, but pretty much right. my day-to-day -day job is to make sure that the lab is running safely, um, everyone's working safely, and we're producing high-quality results. Mm -hmm. So based what we're testing that day could change. <laughs> I mean, we have mm -hmm. our standard testing, but then again, you know, 
an outbreak can pop up and now I'm focused on something completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's basically our my day-to-day is to make sure that the laboratory is running safely because obviously the nature of our business, we want to make sure that nothing um, gets out. Like we're not contaminating the environment around us. We also mm-hmm. want to make sure everyone that works here stays safe. And then we also want to make sure that the results we produce here are high quality and can help make whatever kind of decisions need to be made in a response. And those results are what is being given to the city in order to educate the public, correct? Right. So we're, um, so for this particular outbreak, so, or for anything that we get. So we, I'm also, I also oversee our influenza surveillance program. So every year we have designated clinics and hospitals in the area that submit specimens to us. And we test and we ID what kind of flu type, um, one, if there's flu there or not, and then two, what type is it? Um, Mm -hmm. We give that information back to our epidemiologist, but then we also take our positive samples and we're tied into the bigger national network with CDC because we send those positives on because CDC wants to keep track of what's circulating and what viruses and what strains are circulating. And then that information is used to create like the next flu vaccine. Mm. So not only are we helping, of course, our area, our county, our city, um, and then we're also part of the whole state level. Um, right. We're also part of the global level of trying to do what's circulating and just providing that information out there. So the same mm. thing with COVID-19, the samples that we get, we're reporting back to our epidemiologists or to the hospitals that are submitting to us uh, or the different agencies that are submitting to us. So now they have a better understanding of what's out there, what's testing, um, who they need to test, do they need to follow up. And now the big initiative of doing contact tracing and really um, trying to see how this is spreading. They need that kind of information because, you can't just look at someone. Unfortunately, like they say with a lot of these diseases, it's always like flu-like symptoms. Well, mm-hmm. everything has flu-like symptoms. So you actually need a test and you need a good test to let you know, yes, this is flu. No, this isn't flu. Yes, this is COVID-19. No, it's, mm-hmm. it's not COVID-19. Right. And, you know, it's, it's, I always talk about um, on these podcasts, um, the Holland's Codes and and there are, um, interest areas that help identify through the Department of Labor what careers would potentially be great matches and how to articulate that for young adults. And that's why I say oftentimes people don't even know it's a thing, but there are ways to make those decisions. And for your field, um, the number one is investigative. And so you, you're, you are solving a problem. You just articulated that beautifully with often a very hands-on approach. You have to have a high hand-eye coordination. Pipette, yeah. <laughs> you're working with pipettes, right? Yeah. And so you have to be able to have a high level of that. A lot of careers don't necessarily require a high hand-eye coordination, but this is one of those fields that does. Um, and then the third Collins Code is conventional, very process-driven. And so when I help clients figure out, okay, what are potential careers they would like to do based on what they enjoy, 
you're solving a problem hands-on in a very process-oriented way. And you just beautifully articulated that. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly (laughs) what you need. And I mean, reviewing like some of the questions that you're going to ask or we can discuss, it's like, what do you need? I mean, exactly what you said, because we have various standardizations. We deal with, you know, standard operating protocols and procedures. Like we have, there's ways to get to there, but you do have an answer. And that was truly what got me back into a more lab environment when, when I moved from BC and doing more project and program management. Um, I missed, I mean, I was managing mm-hmm. programs, I was, you know, I was funding, um, helping programs get funded and stuff like that, but I really missed having results, having, mm-hmm. showing that this is, this is what my lab is doing, you know, just having that, like you were saying, kind of result driven mentality of this is what we're doing. Um, even though I don't have to be in there pipetting, but we have results and there's a way to get there and we are, yeah, we're solving a problem. You have an unknown and by the end of the day, by the end of the week, by whatever, you know what it is. Mm-hmm. And you track it. You see, you see yeah. your progression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So t- one thing we talked about um, was, you know, one of the biggest concerns, questions, fears my parents have is where their kids go to school. Right. Um, and so tell me, I know you went to A&M for your undergrad, um, which is one of our flagship universities here, very well respected. Um, majority of probably the clients that I actually work with um, have gone to A&M um, or are going to A&M. But tell me your opinion, because you're in the field. Um, and you, I like you kind of talked about the, the big fish in a little pond. And that can also apply to colleges, by the way, and getting more yeah. opportunities. So tell me your perspective on that. So I totally um, did not search a lot when I was choosing my, I I mean, I didn't have this process. There wasn't someone really to help you guide or figure out or even understand like the idea that you could find a good fit of your university (laughs) to go Mm -hmm. to. And it's not just, oh, you know, stay in Texas, not stay in Texas, you know, what have you. Um, a big university, you know, just because they have a good football team, whatever the, the reason mm-hmm. you decided to go, you know, there's a better fit. Um, <laughs> I, I had a professor, I guess, in, or we had, you know, different speakers when I did my master's and I, I enjoyed, I mean, he did a lot of work and he, you know, he was very happy with his background and he went to like a small and I can't even think of this but like a small little school in like South Texas or whatever but he always said it's not where you go it's what you do with it yes and I, it, it really stuck with me because it's like yeah you it doesn't matter I mean it really I've met people from every you know every types of university small people probably started with associates some people have gone in military Mm -hmm. way you see all that no one really 
that that's not a major concern. Like you you don't know where people went to school. So mm-hmm. granted, there's some universities that may have better programs, obviously, and have opportunities, but you need to find, which I think is important, will you get some kind of experience? Right. I mean, because you can be a fantastic test taker and you could just have the greatest pristine grades whatsoever. But like you talked about, you get in a lab and we talk about people that just have bad hands. Mm-hmm. They're sloppy and their work will never come out right. There will always be problems because they just can't do it. They have bad hands mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not going to work right. out. So there isn't like, oh, the be all end all university that you should go to because that's just going to open the door immediately. It's like, no, I don't care where you went to school. Do you have experience? And I know you're not going to go in there and contaminate my lab. <laughs> and right. you're, you know how to do this stuff. So whether you went to, you know, you started out in a junior college and then transferred and got your degree and whatever, or you went to a very high prestigious school, it doesn't matter. If you have bad hands, Mm -hmm. I can't work with you. Right. Yeah. And that attention to detail that, you know, the integrity, um, you know, analytical thinking, being dependable and getting along. I mean, those are like core critical traits that um, if you, if that resonates with you, then um, you know, it could be a potential good fit. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're, it's, it's a serious thing that's happening in the lab. So that, you know, accuracy can attention to detail is, is pretty, pretty important. Right. Um, so one thing I talk about are salaries, right? Cause um, I think it's, imp- it's a, a, a major part of the conversation that we do not talk enough about. Oftentimes people pick a career and then they go into it and there's zero growth or, they can't get a job and they right. have potentially private student loan debt of 200,000 and they get out making 35 or whatever the case may be. And, and, you know, your career field's a little more challenging because public health is an umbrella. And then there's mm-hmm. all these little things under it that kind of fleet up into that. Um, but kind of the medical and clinical laboratory technologist, it's a pretty generic term, but does require um, a bachelor's degree. That's um, at least what is required. Um, there's great growth in it. There's, you know, 11% mm-hmm. growth in U.S. Um, 6.5 is the average um, within the U.S. So it's above that with about 25,000 projected job openings every year. And you get up into that 81,000, about 90,000 for bachelor's, which is great. Um, Texas, I continue to say, I probably quit. I should quit saying this because everyone's moving here. (laughs) 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 We continue to rock (laughs) across the board. Obviously not right now. Things are a little more challenging, but I mean, we have a 20% growth, which with about 1100 jobs that have to be filled every single year. I mean, that's a pretty significant amount and, you know, still at that, you know, $80,000 mark. So um, I always go on Indeed. Because I'm an, honestly, I'm a researcher at heart for data. Um, I think it's what makes me different from other career counselors is because I'm all about the data. Um, improve it over and over and over and over again. So when you make a decision, it's an extremely well-informed one. And within the U.S., there's actually 6,000 jobs right now 
that are being advertised that need to be filled. And for Texas, there's 235. That's what is currently on Indeed. So it's a healthy career field with a sustainable life. And one thing that I love about Trish, and if you guys listen to any of my podcasts, you know that I'm a, an avid traveler, um, have lived internationally for six years. Um, Trish and I share our wanderlust. And I want you to talk about this travel part because I do think it's what makes what you do unique. And I don't think people realize to the extent and where you get to go and how does that work. So share a little bit about that. Sure. So it started basically um, when I was working for the Association of Public Health Laboratories and I was a program manager for them. And um, it's a nonprofit organization, but we have, um, they would have cooperative agreements with like CDC to help with different initiatives they had. And so CDC had their global influenza surveillance program. And so initially I was trying to find SMEs from, you know, the, the, all the public health laboratories in the U S that would basically go and help assist with training, technical advice, um, laboratory assessments for, um, other national laboratories in different countries. And so that continued on because as we, as this um, outbreak shows us, if people didn't realize that before, we are a global participant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And something that happens across, you know, on the other side of the globe, especially with infectious diseases, you know, they, Mm -hmm. they don't understand borders. They don't understand, you know, travel restrictions. (laughs) They, they, they don't deal with that. Um, So things can move around and we've had lots of examples where that happens. So we are a global participant, whether we want to be or not. I mean, we, Mm -hmm. we we're here, we are here on the globe. So we are a participant. So basically what, our counterparts in laboratories in a different country are having, we're, we're dealing with that too, because we're all lab speak. I mean, yes, we may speak different languages. We may have different food that we have at break, but in the lab, we're all doing basically the same thing. You can't change that. So it's, Mm. it's easy to collaborate um, Mm. a lot easier than maybe some other industries so we would get SMEs to go and help these country laboratories. And I got involved with that. And when I left um, APHL and came to San Antonio, they asked if I could still continue to help with that. And I said, absolutely. Because um, I didn't travel much growing up, like in my, our family, like we went to, you know, family vacations, but it was all U.S. Um I didn't get my passport until I actually was at um, Washington, D.C. and was working there. So it was later in life that I had really traveled anywhere internationally, and I loved it. I loved it. I was like, what? (laughs) Why hadn't I done this, you know, earlier? But it it worked. I, I love going to these countries, so I either go and help out with biosafety, biosecurity trainings, um, working in a laboratory safely, because that's a huge part, or I'm going and doing um, lab assessments. So checking to see what kind of supplies, what kind of training, their workflow, what could help them improve, because again, we're 
you know, as it's been saying over and over, like today, we're all in this together. We're all in this together. So who doesn't mm-hmm. care who it is back? Mm-hmm. Right. And so we need to know what's circulating. We need to know what's out there so we can stay on top of what new is going to come out. And it may be a different strain of flu or it may be a completely different virus. But right. you're making these global contacts and you're help building up our global um, diagnostic infrastructure so that we know it's out there. And so to to link those two together has been godsend for me. Mm. Like I can't, you know, like I said, I can't believe that I would have this opportunity, but it's also keeping, you know, those ties and doing well. And yes, in a lab, you can do a lot of solo work and it's good for someone who wants to concentrate and do that as a, as a solo. But if you want to grow and collaborate, you have to have interactions with people. And I've just found out, you know, as you progress in your career, that another resource of mine is I'm a good ambassador. (laughs) Like I can Mm -hmm. go and represent organizations and they're comfortable with me. I'm not going to offend anyone. I'm not Mm -hmm. going to be too abrasive. I'm going in there to help. And I think when I get there and meet my colleagues from a different country in their laboratory, there's a comfort level that I'm I'm here to help and collaborate. I'm not here to ridicule or audit or, you know, try to judge anyway. I'm trying to make it all better. Yeah. And it's been great. And it's a great opportunity. So just name it, list off a few countries that you've spent time in. So Thailand, um, Cambodia, I've been to Rwanda, Zambia, uh, Morocco, Armenia, Republic of Georgia, um, Panama. So kind of been for blue activities have kind of been just everywhere. And then, of course, adding to that, that as you talked about, our love for travel, of course, then I just added on fun stuff for me (laughs) to go everywhere because, I mean, I'd love to see every place. That's awesome. And, And you know what I love about Trish is that, you know, oftentimes you go by yourself, right? You Yeah, just get on a plane and she goes and you've got to have that independent spirit, I think, to some extent. And, um, and, you know, the ambassador of the world, um, Sydney Chapon, who was uh, my guest um, a couple of podcasts ago in global leadership, you know, we, I always talk about how the world is becoming so much smaller. I think this pandemic yeah. has absolutely hit the nail on the head and, and being uh, a global citizen and uh a lover of learning and, and cultures and, and encompassing um, the different environments and, and the world that's out there, I think is one of the greatest attributes you can have in our society today. And, and obviously that's why you're so well received um, because there is an art to that, to go into another culture, especially when you're going into health, which could be perceived as critiquing. So right. kudos to you. And I would agree. I mean, as I've known Trish over the years, like I said, I mean, she's just so full of information and wisdom and knowledge and incredibly brilliant, which I um, appreciate 
constantly learning from you. And one thing I said I wanted to end on was three words of wisdom. And it's not a word. It's more of philosophy. I guess I need to change yeah. the terminology on that. So tell me what, what are your three for our young adults and, and even potentially adults? Cause I, half of my clients are adults. So, um, that you'd like to share. Yeah, so I, I'm, I definitely can never limit myself to like words. <laughs> it's always phrases <laughs> or anything. I'm always pushing like when someone asks me things, I'm like, well, I don't have like your top three. And I'm like, well, it's really like three and a half. But anyway, so That's okay. my, my, my one is to to just try it, do something. Mm. Um, my mom always had a great phrase with for us growing up. It was like, do something even if it's wrong just do mm. something. So try right. it out and do something. Um, you know, if you, if you don't apply, if you, if you don't even try to get into the fellowship or you don't apply for mm. that job, you'll never get it, of course. So mm -hmm. just try and, and try to do something. Uh, another one is, let me say something Trish, on that before you go on to your next one. Cause I think that is a really, really powerful point. What I find with our young adults now is that if they can't do it perfectly, they don't do it. Yes. And they, if they don't think that they can get it, they do not try. Um, yes. We have not allowed our youth to learn what failure feels like, looks like, and learns from. So I think that is probably one of the most profound statements I've heard from any of our podcasts. It was a, a really critical one. And the reason I know this is because I was that person. I would avoid growing up because I I was a perfectionist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would mm -hmm. avoid things that I knew I couldn't not just get through, excel. It had mm -hmm. to be that level. So in right. you know, I you know, hindsight twenty twenty, like I go back and I was just like, God, why didn't I try that? Mm. And I'm so you know, you just tell yourself you're so silly, like, why didn't you even try? And who cares if you right. failed? But it, it, it's really hard. It's very hard to get past that. But mm. you should, because there's a lot of opportunities you're missing. And I know, because I probably did miss out on certain things, because I was that person. I wouldn't do things if I knew I couldn't get 100%. And then it started to ease up. And I, I, you know, when you first dip your toe in the water and it happens, it's just it's refreshing. Mm. And then there'll be times when you try and you don't get it. Mm -hmm. And that, that you're like, oh, I didn't die. Like, mm. <laughs> I'm okay. The right, world right. in. And so, yeah, that's a huge one. Just try, just, just try and do something. Um, it may work, it may not work out, but hey. Mm -hmm. you did something and and it ties into uh, not being afraid and, or letting fear stop you and that's always a tough one too mm. you know some people don't want like I mean I think fear kept me in Texas mm. for going to school like I couldn't imagine leaving the state that wasn't that that kind of kept me in I would think because I I don't know I don't know anything beyond that uh, so who knows what would happen if I didn't let that fear or even like fear of traveling, because like mm -hmm. you said, I mean, I go by myself sometimes. I, I do meet up with a colleague somewhere, but a lot of it is on your own. And 
some people are afraid and they don't want to leave their bubble. And I understand that. And there's comfort in being Mm -hmm. in your area, but you have to figure out some way to get past that and try to just try something different. And those kind of two tie together. And then my other one was to ask, to ask people, if you're interested, I think a lot of, I would have never had the opportunity to work in a BSL-3 or, you know, help out in an anthrax response if I didn't go to someone I had met and ask to say, would y'all, you know, I'd be Mm -hmm. interested in helping. Um, When I wanted a different change, you know, someone that I met through the fellowship, I called them and I asked, what do you know of any other job openings or what, you know, do you know anyone I can talk to? And that got me the job to see. So asking people, if you're interested in things, I remember working in New York, wanting to learn from some of the most experienced um, microbiologists there, just asking, like, do you mind showing me this? And people will, but you have to ask. They're not going to come up to you and say, hey, would you like to learn everything I know (laughs) and pass this on to you? But you just have to ask people. And majority of the time, people are so willing to help and help you out and educate you, but you have to ask. Yeah. And I will, with my clients, once they get their top top four picks, which we do together, um, then they have to go and do informational interviews. It's part of their homework assignment. And it's, they're hilarious because they'll say to me, well, will they talk to me? And I say, well, first of all, you know, it shows initiative, shows that you care, you went through a formal process, you know that you're a great, um, you have the aptitude, you have the brain ability to do it, you have the interest to do it, and you have a personality that fits with it. People love that you have actually come to them, not just willy-nilly going, hey, tell me about it without, you know, any background to support it. And professionals love to share what they do. And I always say, if you don't shame on you, because I think that's why we're on this earth. Um, I mean, it is and 90% of all jobs are obtained through somebody, you know, and so if you and my introverts, which typically fall into my science and medical field, um, that's not comfortable for them at all. But it has that is what different differentiates people, in my opinion, of, you know, putting yourself out there, showing that you're curious asking for insight and professional feedback. And um, it is, I mean, you're a, a prime example of how your career has been pivoted. That. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, one thing, um, you know, I always just share at the end is that, you know, oftentimes we think about career exploration just for high school students, but it's, it's for anyone who's not happy in their career. And Trish has heard me over the years. Um, she listens to my passion about this topic, but you know, for individuals who are struggling and knowing, gosh, I like science or I like math. And, you know, I only think of doctor being a doctor, which often, you know, it's the hardest, hardest path to get there. Um, most people want to do it. And then ultimately you all know about the, the admission um, percentages from medical school, and that's just not the only path. And so there's just ways to make concrete decisions about future. And that's why I'm doing these podcasts to give insight into 
careers that maybe have not been on your radar before that, that may really pique your interest. And I know Trish would be happy to talk to anyone um, of my clients who listen to the podcast and want information. Um, so just know that there's great, great, great people there to help. So on another note, Patricia, <laughs> I call her Trish, by the way, I just want to, I want to thank you and everyone in your field for what you're doing. I know the hours you're working. I know the stress and pressure that you're under. And, um, you know, it, we're just really lucky in our world to have people who take what they do so seriously, as you can hear from uh, listening to you today. Uh, we know we're in great hands. So just from me to you, thank you so much for oh, everything. Very you sweet. Thank you. All right. Well, um, we appreciate everyone listening. Um, if you want to have access to the podcast before they hit all the podcast platforms, you can go to um, whatsyourcareerstory.com and sign up. They come out um, on the e-blast at the first of the month. Um, our next one's going to be a cybersecurity professional, which is a hot career. And um, I just want to thank everyone for listening and hope you all proceed with confidence. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to What's Your Career Story. If you'd like early access to episodes, you can join us at whatsyourcareerstory.com. If you'd like to learn about career paths, sign up for our monthly newsletter, which is also available at whatsyourcareerstory.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.